It's the first few pages, it's the first few pages, it's the first few pages, it's the first few pages. Hello, and welcome. You're listening to The First Few Pages, a Carlton Place Public Library podcast. I'm your host, Caroline Zeman. The aim of this podcast is to introduce you to all of the amazing books that are available for free in the public domain. You can access these books on the internet through Project Gutenberg and Google Books, and you can download them in uh, various formats. This week, I am bringing you a little enlightenment. The enlightenment, in fact. I'm going to tell you about Voltaire's Candide. I will try to place it in its historical context, and then I will read the first few pages. I got my information this week from History.com, Britannica.com, an article in the Guardian newspaper from 2011 by Julian Barnes, and, of course, Wikipedia. I chose Candide this week because it always reminds me of my pre-internet high school years, when I would get obsessed with an author or a topic or a historical period and just be in that rabbit hole for months. These were rabbit holes that didn't benefit from the glory that is the internet. You had to work to dig a rabbit hole back in the day. My sister Cora was a champion pre-internet obsessive. At the same time that I was discovering the Enlightenment, she had covered her bedroom walls with hand-drawn family trees of the Tudors and the Stuarts. Everything I know about the War of the Roses I learned from my older sister in the 90s. I entered my Enlightenment period when I was in probably grade 11. We had to write a paper for a history class. I don't remember what the assignment was, but I do remember the amazing book that I found. It was one of those really neat books that presents historical facts and biographies in an infographic format, and it just opened the door to the whole age of enlightenment for me. It introduced me to John Locke and Adam Smith and Thomas Hobbes and Jean-Jacques Rousseau and Denis Diderot and René Descartes. Uh, side note, my book cart at the library is called René, René Descartes. <laughs> Get it? <laughs> I think that part of my interest was that the Enlightenment butted up right against and in some way caused the French Revolution. This was the birth of my interest in social history. I ended up handing in a 15-page paper about Voltaire and got back a great mark and a note from the teacher telling me that they didn't read past page 3, but they were impressed with my enthusiasm. So now, let me tell you a little bit about the Enlightenment. The Age of Enlightenment, also known as the Age of Reason, or simply the Enlightenment, was an intellectual and philosophical movement that dominated the world of ideas in Europe during the 17th and 18th centuries. The Enlightenment emerged out of a European intellectual and scholarly movement known as Renaissance Humanism, which we talked about last episode when we were discussing uh, Boccaccio and the Italian Renaissance. Some consider the publication of Isaac Newton's Principia Mathematica in 1687 as the first major Enlightenment work. French historians traditionally date the Enlightenment from 1715 to about 1789, so from the death of Louis XIV of France until the breakout the outbreak of the French Revolution. Philosophers and scientists of the period widely circulated their ideas through meetings at scientific academies, literary salons, coffee houses, and in printed books, journals, and pamphlets. The ideas of the Enlightenment undermined the authority of the monarchy and the church and paved the way for the political revolutions of the 18th and 19th centuries. In France, the central doctrines of the doctrines of the Enlightenment philosophers were individual liberty and religious tolerance, in opposition to an absolute monarchy and the fixed dogmas of the Catholic Church. So that's the basic of the Enlightenment, the tip of the iceberg of information. 
but all that we need to know in order to place Voltaire and his novella Candide in context. On to Voltaire! Why, you may be asking, have I never called him by his full name? The answer is that Voltaire is a pen name, and much like Cher and Beyoncé, all he needed was the one name. He was born Francois-Marie Arouet in Paris, the youngest of five children of Francois Arouet, a lawyer who was a minor treasury official, and his wife Marie-Marguerite Dalmard, whose family was on the lowest rank of the French nobility. It is not certain when he was born, as Voltaire was a bit of a myth-maker about his own life, and he has claimed that he is actually the illegitimate son of a nobleman, but that is just patently not true. Uh, he was educated by the Jesuits at the Collège louis saint grand in um, about 1704 to 1711, and there he was taught Latin, theology, and rhetoric, and then later in life he became fluent in Italian, Spanish, and English, as well as French. So from early on, Voltaire had trouble with the authorities for critiques of the government. As a result, he was twice sentenced to prison and once to temporary exile in England. One satirical verse which Voltaire, in which Voltaire accused the regent, the Duke of Orléans, of incest with his daughter resulted in an 11-month imprisonment in the Bastille. When he emerged from the Bastille, he had his new pen name, Voltaire. No one is certain where it comes from or what it really meant, but I'm fond of the theory that, according to a family tradition among the descendants of his sister, he was known as Le Petit Volontaire, or um, Determined Little Guy, as a child, and he resurrected a variant of the name in his adult life. Voltaire was a versatile and prolific writer, producing in almost every literary form, including plays, poems, novels, essays, and historical and scientific works. He wrote more than 20,000 letters and more than 2,000 books and pamphlets. He was an outspoken advocate of civil liberties, despite the risk this placed him under in the strict censorship of the time. As a satirical polemicist, he frequently made use of his works to criticize intolerance, religious dogma, and the French institutions of his day. So now I have some fun Voltaire facts, because he had quite the life, guys. So first... Voltaire became hugely wealthy by exploiting a flaw in the French lottery system. So in 1729, Voltaire teamed with mathematician Charles-Marie de la Condamine and um, others to exploit a lucrative loophole in the French national lottery. The government shelled out massive prizes for the contest each month, but an errant calculation meant that the uh, payouts were larger than the value of all the tickets in circulation. With this in mind, Voltaire, La Condamine, and a syndicate of other gamblers were able to repeatedly corner the market and rake in massive winnings. The scheme left Voltaire with a windfall of nearly half a million francs, setting him up for life and allowing him to devote himself solely to his literary career, which is good because his father was adamantly against him being a writer and wanted him to be a lawyer, and so they had a falling out. But he did not need his daddy's money. So, uh, next fun fact... Uh, he helped to popularize the famous tale about Sir Isaac Newton and the apple. So he offered one of the first accounts of how the famed scientist developed his theories on gravity. In his 1727 essay on epic poetry, Voltaire wrote that, quote, Newton had the first thought of his system of gravitation upon seeing an apple falling from a tree. Voltaire wasn't the original source of this story, as has often been claimed, but his account was instrumental in making it a fabled part of Newton's biography. And he was all about Newton. Uh, he claims that when he first received uh, his copy of the Principia Mathematica, he fell to his knees and wept. 
Uh, he was a little bit dramatic. So next fun fact, he had a brief career as a spy for the French government. So in the late 1730s, Voltaire struck up a lively correspondence with Frederick the Great of Prussia, and he began visiting him frequently. Before one of these visits, in 1743, Voltaire concocted an ill-advised scheme to use his new position to repair his reputation with the French court. After hatching a deal to serve as a government informant, he wrote several letters to the French, giving inside uh, information on Frederick's foreign policy and finances. Voltaire, however, proved a lousy spy, and his plan quickly fell apart after Frederick grew suspicious of his motives. I like to think that they never talked about politics or finances. And then one day Voltaire shows up and he's like, So, Frederick, tell me all about uh, your plans to move troops into uh, South Prussia. And Frederick's like, wait, what? <laughs> anyway, um, the two remained close friends even after Frederick was like, what are you doing? Uh, some scholars have even claimed that they were lovers. And uh, Voltaire later moved to Prussia in 1750 to take a permanent position in Frederick's court. Their relationship finally soured in 1752, however, after Voltaire made a series of scathing attacks on the head of the Prussian Academy of Sciences. Frederick responded by lambasting Voltaire and ordered that a satirical pamphlet he had written be publicly burned. A lot of his books were publicly burned. Voltaire left the court for good in 1753, supposedly telling a friend, quote, I was enthusiastic about Frederick for 16 years, but he has cured me of this long illness, end quote. So next fun fact, he never married or fathered children. So while Voltaire technically died a bachelor, his personal life was a revolving door of mistresses, paramours, and long-term lovers. He carried out a famous 16-year affair with the brilliant and very married author and scientist Emily du Chalet, um, who was the first person to translate Newton's Principia Mathematica into French. Um, and later, he had a committed, though secretive, partnership with his own niece, Marie-Louise Mignot. There is no evidence that this relationship was sexual in any way. He did write her letters in Italian so that nobody else could read them, but um, they did live as a married couple from the early 1850s until his death, and they even adopted a child in 1760 when they took in a destitute young woman named Marie-Francois Corniel. Um, Voltaire later paid the dowry for Corniel's wedding and often referred to um, Mignot, his niece, and himself as Corniel's parents. Uh, so next, many of his most famous works were banned. Uh, so since his writing denigrated everything from organized religion to the justice system, Voltaire ran up against frequent censorship from the French government. A good portion of his work was suppressed, and the authorities even ordered certain books to be burned by the state executioner. Which, I don't know why, but it tickles me that that's the state executioner's job, is also to execute books. <laughs> uh, his famous novella, Candide, was originally attributed to a Dr. Ralph, and his, he actively tried to distance himself from it for several years after both the government and the church condemned it. Despite his best attempts to remain anonymous, Voltaire lived in almost constant fear of arrest. He was forced to flee to the French countryside after his um, letters concerning the English nation was released in 1734, uh, which people didn't like because the French and the English, I don't know if you guys know this, have a very strange relationship. Um, and he went to spend the majority of his later life in unofficial exile in Switzerland. So he wasn't exiled by the government, but he kind of fled in fear of his life. 
Um, next fun fact. So he set up a successful watchmaking business in his old age. So while living in Fernay, Switzerland in the 1770s, Voltaire joined with a group of Swiss horologists, horologists, which I think is people who study clocks and watches, horologists. Um, so they, this group started a watchmaking business uh, at his estate. So with the septuagenarian Voltaire acting as manager and financier, the endeavor soon grew into a village-wide industry and Fernay watches became uh, a rival of some of the best in Europe. So here's a little quote from Voltaire. Quote, our watches are very well made, very handsome, very good, and cheap. He once wrote to the uh, French ambassador to the Vatican. Voltaire saw the enterprise as a way to prop up the Fernet economy, and he used his vast network of upper-class contacts to find prospective buyers. Among others, he eventually succeeded in peddling his watches to the likes of Catherine the Great of Russia and King Louis XV of France. In honor of their famous resident, the town uh, Fernet in Switzerland is now known as Fernet Voltaire. There's a statue of him as well. Uh, so, next fact. So he continued causing co controversy even after his death. So Voltaire died in Paris in 1778, just a few months after returning to the city for the first time in 28 years to oversee the production of one of his plays. Over the last few days of his life, Catholic church officials repeatedly visited Voltaire, a lifelong um, atheist who was often critical of organized religion, uh, in the hope of persuading him to retract his opinions and make a deathbed confession. The great writer was unmoved and supposedly brushed off the priests by saying, Quote, let me die in peace. Uh, there's a story that he, um, the, the priest told him to uh, turn away from the devil and cast off the devil before he died. And, and Voltaire fame allegedly said something along the lines of, now is not the time to be making enemies. But they can't find any kind of original source for that. They think it might have just been a story that was made up in the 1930s. Uh, so his refusal to um, make a deathbed confession um, meant that he was officially den denied a Christian burial, but his friends and family managed to arrange a secret internment in the Champagne region of France before the order became official. So um, I have two quotes that I love from Voltaire. Uh, I think they're always applicable, but especially in our times. So the first one is, those who can make you believe absurdities can make you commit atrocities. Which is, I mean, come on. And then the, la the next one is, if God did not exist, it would be necessary to invent him. Which I'm sure you guys have heard before. It's from Voltaire. So, uh, however, uh, contrary to popular belief, Voltaire was not behind the famous statement, quote, I disapprove of what you say, but I will defend to the death your right to say it. Those words were written, oh, end quote. Those words were written by Evelyn Beatrice Hall under a pseudonym in her biography of Voltaire, and she was summing up his attitude to other people's writing, that he was very pro-free speech, but he never actually said that. So now on to Candide. So Candide is a satirical novel published in 1759, and it is the best-known work by Voltaire. It is a savage denunciation of metaphysical optimism as espoused by the German philosopher Gottfried Wilhelm Leibniz that reveals a world of horrors and follies. 
Voltaire's Candide was influenced by various atrocities in the mid-18th century, most notably the devastating Lisbon earthquake of 1755, the outbreak of the horrific Seven Years' War in the German states, and the unjust execution of English Admiral John Byng. Uh, this philosophical tale is often hailed as a pragmatic text of the Enlightenment, but it is also an ironic attack on the optimistic beliefs of the Enlightenment. Voltaire's critique directed at Leibniz's principles of sufficient reason, which maintains that nothing can be without can nothing can be so without there being a reason why it is so. The consequence of this principle is the belief that the actual world must be the best one humanly possible. Which I mean, that's insane. <laughs> Candide is known the hero of the novel Candide is known to be the innocent of innocence. So at the beginning of the novel, uh, it's eponymous hero, the young and naive Candide, schooled in this optimistic philosophy by his tutor Pangloss, who claims that, quote, all is for the best in this best of all possible worlds, end quote, is ejected from the magnificent castle in which he is raised. The rest of the novel details the multiple hardships and disasters that Candide and his various companions meet in their travels. These include war, rape, theft, hanging, shipwrecks, earthquakes, cannibalism, and slavery. Although these experiences gradually erode Candide's optimistic belief, he and his companions display an instinct for survival that gives them hope in an otherwise somber setting. When they all retire together to a simple life on a farm, they discover that the secret of happiness is to, quote, cultivate one's garden, end quote, a practical philosophy that excludes excessive idealism and nebulous metaphysics. Candide is a prime example of literature as news. Um, it was no fable inhabiting some make-believe or symbolic location, but a report on the current state of the world deliberately set among the headlines of the day. Thus, the naive Candide and his philosopher Master Pangloss get instructively caught up in the Lisbon earthquake, an event of such destructiveness uh, that 30,000 people died. This disaster occurred as recently as November 1755, um, and then the Inquisition's response to that earthquake, which was um, an auto de fe uh, designed to sweep up heretics, um, Candide and Pangloss got swept up in that hunt, and that took place in June of 1756. So. Even more recent was the incident Candide witnessed in Portsmouth Harbor, which was the execution of Admiral John Byng for cowardice in the face of the French at the Battle of Minorca. Uh, this took place on March 14th, 1757, so just over a year before Voltaire started writing his novel. Um, as you can see, the novel makes reference to actual events that were happening not long before it was written. So to the novel's first readers, it would have felt in its immediacy like a political kind of strip cartoon. And while a lot of the contemporary references have faded and fallen with time, and many readers would need a footnote to be told that the Lisbon earthquake really happened, or that the um, Jesuit missions in Paraguay were happening at that time, the novel itself remains as fresh and pertinent as ever. Most of us come into this world as innocent and hopeful as Candide, even if most of us discover slowly or quickly that there is no pre-established harmony to life. So, uh, on to my reader tags. The first one is trigger warning. 
So Candide stumbles upon a lot of suffering and pain, so just be warned. The next one is satire. So this is a satire. And you need to keep in mind that satire is not about finding a solution. It doesn't spring from a worked out strategy for the micromanaged moral rehabilitation of humanity. It's rather it is a necessary expression of moral rage. Satirists are by nature pessimists. They know that the world changes all too slowly. If satire worked, if the hypocrite and liar publicly chastised reformed themselves, then satire would no longer be needed. Um, as, as Candide says, but what, to what end was the world formed? And his companion responds to him, to make us mad. Satire is one response to and an outlet for this cosmic madness. Satire is one way in which society can point at something and say, do you see this? Do you see how ridiculous this is? Do you see how horrible this is? Uh, the next um, reader's tag is self-care, which is a very modern idea, I know. But Candide ends with our hero realizing that he must tend to his own garden. This is one of the main philosophical ideals to come out of the Enlightenment, the importance of the individual. And it's something that still reverberates today. There was recently a book that came out, I don't remember what it was called, but it was about how this concept of focusing on the individual and on your own self has political and social ramifications even today, and that in the Enlightenment they thought that by improving myself themselves, they were improving the world, and that has, has that proven to be true, is what the book kind of tackles. I didn't read it, but it sounded interesting. Um... So in a little sum up, Candide made the teenage me think about how I think about things. It helped me to realize that an important part of growing up is learning how wrong we are about how we think the world works and shifting our moral and philosophical ideas with each new lesson that we learn. It allowed me to think about the systems that we rely on and why they work the way they work and who is suffering because of them. These were big thoughts for a small town girl in the 90s. So now I'll read the first few pages of Voltaire's Candide. Candide, chapter one. How Candide was brought up in a magnificent castle and how he was expelled thence. In a castle of Westphalia, belonging to the Baron of Thunder Ten Tronk, lived a youth whom nature had endowed with the most gentle manners. His countenance was a true picture of his soul. He combined a true judgment with simplicity of spirit, which was the reason, I apprehend, of him being called Candide. The old servants of the family suspected him to have been the son of the baron's sister by a good, honest gentleman of the neighborhood, whom that young lady would never marry because he had been able to prove only seventy-one quarterings, the rest of his genealogical tree having been lost through the injuries of time. The baron was one of the most powerful lords in Westphalia, for his castle had not only a gate, but windows. His great hall, even, was hung with tapestry. All the dogs of his farmyards formed a pack of hounds at need. His grooms were his huntsmen, and the curate of the village was his grand almoner. They called him my lord and laughed at all his stories. The baron's lady weighed about three hundred and fifty pounds, and was therefore a person of great consideration, and she did the honours of the house with a dignity that commanded still greater respect. Her daughter, Kungonde, was seventeen years of age, fresh-coloured, comely, plump, and desirable. The baron's son seemed to be in every respect worthy of his father. 
The preceptor Pangloss was the oracle of the family, and little Candide heard his lessons with all the good faith of his age and character. Pangloss was a professor of metaphysico-theologico-cosmolognology. He proved admirably that there is no effect without a cause, and that in the best of all possible, in this the best of all possible worlds, the Baron's castle was the most magnificent of castles, and his lady the best of all possible baronesses. It is demonstrable, said he, that things cannot be otherwise than as they are, for all being created for an end, all is ne necessarily for the best end. Observe that the nose has been formed to bear spectacles. Thus, we have spectacles. Legs are visibly designed for stockings, and we have stockings. Stones were made to be hewn and to construct castles. Therefore, my lord has a magnificent castle. For the greatest baron in the province ought to have the best lo be the best lodged. Pigs were made to be eaten. Therefore, we eat pork all year round. Consequently, they who assert that all is well have said a foolish thing. They should have said all is for the best. Candide listened attentively and believed innocently, for he thought Miss Cungonde extremely beautiful, though he had never had the courage to tell her so. He concluded that after the happiness of being born of Baron of Thunder Ten Tronked, the second degree of happiness was to be Miss Cungonde, the third of third that of seeing her every day, and the fourth that of hearing Master Pangloss, the greatest philosopher of the whole province, and consequently of the whole world. One day Cungonde, while walking near the castle in a little wood which they called a park, saw between the bushes Dr. Pangloss giving a lesson in experimental natural philosophy to her mother's chambermaid, a little brown wench, very pretty and very docile. As Miss Cungonde had a great disposition for the sciences, she breathlessly observed the repeated experiments of which she was a witness. She clearly perceived the force of the doctor's reasons, the effects, and the causes. She turned back greatly flurried, quite pensive, and filled with the desire to be learned, dreams, dreaming that she might well be a sufficient reason for young Candide and he for her. She met Candide on reaching the castle and blushed. Candide blushed also. She wished him good morrow in a faltering tone, and Candide spoke to her without knowing what he said. The next day, after dinner, as they went from table, Cungonde and Candide found themselves behind a screen. Cungonde let fall her handkerchief. Candide picked it up. She took him innocently by the hand. The youth trembled. Their hands stayed. Their hands strayed. Baron Thunder Ten Tronked passed near the screen, and beholding this cause and effect, chased Candide from the castle with great kicks on the backside. Cungonde fainted, fainted away. She was boxed on the ears by the Baroness as soon as he came to herself, and all was consternation in this most magnificent and most agreeable of all possible castles. So that was the first five pages, the first chapter of Candide. I hope you'd like it. I like it. Uh, satirical tone. Um, I like the characters. Let me know if you guys read it. Let me know if you like it. Also, let me know if you think of any uh, books that are in the public domain that I should talk about. Don't forget to like, uh, review, and subscribe to the podcast. You can contact us on Twitter at, Carlton, at CP Library. Find us on Facebook. Thank you for listening, and I'll see you guys next week.